and welcome to the Hearsay Sidebar, a podcast where the Hearsay team gets together around the microphone to talk about the legal side of what's in the news. The Hearsay Sidebar is a podcast by Lext Australia, a legal innovation company that makes the law easier to access and easier to practice. When you hear the word surveillance, you might associate it with government agencies secretly monitoring the conversations of foreign diplomats like the Australia East Timor spying scandal in the early 2000s and the decades of legal manoeuvring that followed. But the proliferation of devices capable of surveillance and recording, even since the early 2000s, means that surveillance is no longer solely the province of state actors. Most of us carry in our pocket a device more than capable of covertly recording both audio and video, as well as geographic location, with or without our consent. And so the technology and capability available today to state actors like the police is exponentially more powerful than that. So exactly what is a surveillance device? What can and can't you do with one? Which recordings are permissible and which aren't? And what can you do with a recording once you've obtained it? Joining me for a second time today is Helen Christensen and Damien Mann. Since we last spoke with Helen and Damien, Helen has become a partner at Hugo Law Group and Damien has been promoted to associate. Helen and Damien, thank you so much for joining me again on Hearsay. Thank you so much for having us. Now, before we jump into the topic, yeah, exciting career updates for both of you. Yes, we've... Both had a big year and so has our firm, Hugo Law Group, has expanded since last time we were in here. We've opened up an office in Perth and we'll be opening up a new office in northern New South Wales in the new year. Wow, very exciting. It is, yes. And how's the new title fitting you, Damien? Yeah, very well. Well, I guess both myself and Helen have been propelled into superstardom since our last (laughs) appearance on Hearsay. So we've continued our good work as lawyers, but we're now podcast celebrities. I think it's appropriate that our (laughs) position reflect that. that. Yeah, absolutely. And the paparazzi can be difficult to manage after an appearance on Hearsay, but hopefully you're managing it just fine. Yeah, we've got some decoys running point. (laughs) Some body doubles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have to. Let's get into it. We're talking about surveillance devices, and it's sort of a nice follow-on from our last conversation about illegally or improperly obtained evidence. By the way, if you haven't listened to that one, dear listener, please go back and have a listen to that one to hear about Helen and Damien's background before we spoke to them, their background and careers in the law, but also to hear about a topic that's very closely tied to this one. But surveillance devices is our topic today. Let's start from first principles, real basics. What legislation are we talking about, at least in New South Wales, when we're talking about the Surveillance Devices Act? Yeah, sure. So in New South Wales, the Surveillance Devices Act 2007 is the legislation that we deal with when it comes to surveillance devices. The objects of the Act are threefold. So the first is that it provides law enforcement agencies with a really comprehensive framework for the use of surveillance devices in criminal investigations. It also enables law enforcement agencies to covertly gather evidence for the purposes of criminal prosecutions. And of course, finally, and what might I anticipate form a lot of our discussion today is the third part of the objects of the Act, which is to ensure the privacy of individuals isn't unnecessarily impinged upon. And it provides really strict requirements around the installation and the use and the maintenance of surveillance devices. Yeah, I think we will spend a lot of time on that third object because there's a really close relationship between this Act and civil liberties, isn't there? As I said at the top of the episode, we do often think of surveillance in terms of state actors as the surveilling party. And the Act is an important fetter 
on that power of the state to monitor its citizens. But I'm really interested to also talk about this private use of surveillance devices as well, because as I said, I think we all carry surveillance devices with us every day. And this is a topic that's really useful for civil litigators as well. This isn't just one for the criminal law buffs because recordings and their legality come up all the time in civil litigation now. Whenever we have a case that hinges upon a conversation or an admission made in a conversation, of course, we want some corroborating evidence to take that beyond the mere statement of it in an affidavit. And recording is a powerful way to do that if it's permissible. So you mentioned that the Act covers a few different kinds of surveillance devices. Maybe, Damien, I'll throw to you. What are the different kinds of surveillance devices that the Act covers? Yeah, so it is a broad definition of what's included as a surveillance device. The Act encompasses modern surveillance devices, which people be aware of, such as the use of smartphones. Long gone are the days where we're talking about micro cassette players and wires and the kind of ideas you'd think of as historical surveillance. So in relation to the definition, it's broken up into four parts. There's a data surveillance device, a listening device, an optical surveillance device, and a tracking device. And all four types of devices are included under the umbrella term of surveillance device. And a combination of the two, such as a smartphone, which may have the capability to take on a number of those functions. Yeah, well, all of them, really. And it sounds to me like the definition is one that is really more about purpose and functionality rather than a kind of static definition based on current technology. That's right. Yeah. And there are different restrictions that apply to each device. So the restrictions that apply to using a video recording device are very different to those of an audio recording device. Maybe let's start there just with that distinction, because although we've also got our tracking device and data surveillance devices, which maybe we'll come to a little bit later in the episode, I think eight times out of 10, we're talking about video and talking about audio. And there's a lot of misconceptions as well, I think, around what's permissible, especially in a public space, around video and audio. So maybe let's start there and let's start with video. Mm. So video surveillance devices, in terms of what's permissible, and it is quite different to the listening device, which we'll come to, but with video surveillance devices, it's permissible to record someone by video as long as you're not trespassing when you're doing the recording or making the recording, as long as you're not interfering with a vehicle or something like that, then it's permissible to actually video record someone. If that video also encompasses speaking, there may be some grey area there. And then maybe I'll throw to you, Damien, about the listening devices and what might be permissible there. Yeah, so in relation to listening devices, Section 7 of the Surveillance Devices Act covers what would encroach on an illegal recording. It's an offence. So in relation to that matter or that offence provision, it carries a maximum penalty of five years. So I think I want to stress at the start that this is a serious criminal offence and perhaps that's not always commonly appreciated. But as far as what would constitute a breach of that provision, if you're recording a private conversation, and we'll say a little bit more about what may constitute a private conversation, but if you're effectively secretly recording that private 
conversation and recording the words that are said and the person who's saying those words is, is not aware of it, that's an offence under the provision. There are certain exceptions which we'll come to again. Yeah, I'm really interested to talk about two things there. One, what is a public conversation? Because, again, I think the heuristics that we might have or the assumptions that we might have can be surprising there. And also what those exceptions are, because I said there's some common assumptions that might not be correct about how the Act works with these things. And that includes, I think, audio or listening devices. And that includes in the legal profession. I think a lot of lawyers have the assumption or have the belief that, well, it's unlawful to record a conversation, a private conversation without both parties' consent. And that's where it ends. But there's a exception for recording conversations that are reasonably necessary for the protection of your lawful interests to record. And what extends to a lawful interest is a really interesting question, especially for those civil litigators who might be listening. But let's take it a step back. Let's talk about what a public or a private conversation is. So what's interesting is First up, there is the carve-out defence that you just spoke about. It's made out essentially if the person recording the conversation can establish that they did so because it was reasonably necessary for the protection of their lawful interests, which is what you've just spoken about. Additionally, or that the recording was not made for the purpose of communicating or publishing the conversation or a report of the conversation to people who aren't parties to the conversation. That's a defence that might be relied upon if the recording's made secretly. If the recording is made with the consent of the other person, you don't need these sorts of defences. That's exactly right. In terms of what constitutes a private conversation, this is an interesting question because there's some law around where a private conversation can occur. For example, one might have a conversation with another person in a restaurant or something like that and might suggest that conversation was private even though it was occurring in a public place. And there are a couple of cases that have dealt with this question. The case of Poland and Headley is kind of an interesting one. So this occurred where Mr Poland attended a meeting at a restaurant and during that meeting the conversation was recorded. And the parties that were part of that conversation were the only people seated at the table and they didn't expect that anybody else would be listening into their conversation. The court in that case held that people seated at a table in a restaurant or a cafe don't ordinarily expect their conversation to be overheard, even though it might be possible for other patrons or staff or anyone passing by to accurately hear the conversation. And it's common for people to conduct business meetings and job interviews and other conversations which they wish to be private in those public settings. So in that case, the objective circumstances of the conversation established that the conversation was a private conversation, even though it was happening in a public place. The other case that is really on point in terms of a private conversation happening in a public area is the case of Kanjan. This was a case where there was this really protracted and intricate background of family dispute. It's a really large judgment. (laughs) It covers this issue as well as a whole bunch of issues about estoppel and things like that. And that case involved some family members going to visit other family members in a nursing home and secretly recording a conversation that occurred between those parties. So although it was happening in a nursing home, it was happening in the dining area of the nursing home. And it was submitted that because it was a busy dining room, 
then the parties ought reasonably to have expected that it might have been overheard by someone. And at paragraph 477, the court said, a private conversation is one which might reasonably be taken as intended to be confined and listened to by the persons who are a party to the conversation. And it might be private even though it occurs in a public place, such as a restaurant, or the participants are at liberty to tell others about it later. So in that case, they said that even though the dining room was open to other residents and staff and guests, the evidence was that the parties to that conversation were sitting at their own table and having conversations amongst themselves. And there was some evidence to suggest that they might have attracted attention while they were talking. But that said, the recording didn't indicate that they were speaking loudly or otherwise in a way that would encourage people to listen. And they said that the presence of other people around the parties to the conversation could have been expected to give rise to general noise that might have made it difficult for the conversation to be heard. So objectively, those circumstances were such that the parties ought not reasonably to have expected that their conversation would have been overheard by others in the room. So yeah, private conversations are conversations that can happen between a group of people that they don't expect to have others overheard. And that can happen in a room where nobody else is present or in a place where there are loads of other people present. I might add the case of Toth and DPP to That, that's one I read this week and mm. we're preparing for this podcast. That concerned a doctor and his patient. And just looking at that at face value, you'd expect that to be a private conversation. Or privileged as well. Of course. It's perhaps one of the most sensitive conversations you're going to have, that between a patient and a doctor in the doctor's rooms. In this case, the patient was covertly so unknowingly recording the conversation. And in seeking to have that excluded, it was argued that was not a private conversation because at the time the conversation was capable of being overheard from the reception area. That was rightfully rejected by the court in that instance and consistent with what Helen's just said. It was said that despite there being capability that the conversation may have been overheard by others, the nature of that conversation is certainly a private one. I think as with a lot of tests that invite a really factual matrix-specific analysis, these sorts of cases give us some guidance on where we might end up, but you can see how much grey there is in any given factual scenario. Because on the one hand, we've got the intention of the parties. Is this conversation intended to be confined to the people participating in it? Do we intend to be overheard or do we think we'll be overheard? And the capacity for being actually overheard and the environment that goes with that. I mean, I'm just thinking about the reverse scenario where I might be having a shouting match with a colleague in a glass-walled office that is in a private place, my office, but can clearly be both seen and overheard by anyone who's walking yeah, past, right. is that now a public conversation <laughs> about a very private matter that's taking place in a private place? So you could think of a similar scenario with a backyard or a front porch. It's a really factual matrix-specific question, isn't it? It is. It's all very much comes down to what are the facts of the case? But we certainly can't just say, well, public place, public conversation. It's not so simple. Exactly. Now, the other thing that I really want to delve into so far as listening devices is concerned is this idea of a recording that's reasonably necessary for the protection of your lawful interests. I'm interested in it because as a civil litigator, it's one that comes up a lot. There is a line of authority that making a recording because it's in your interests relating to some litigation that's on foot or that's apprehended is a lawful interest for which you can make a recording, at least so far as a conversation between the parties to that litigation is concerned. 
What are some of the authorities, Helen, around what a lawful interest actually is? Yeah. So the courts have held that lawful interests shouldn't be construed so broadly as to frustrate the purpose of the legislation is, is yeah. the succinct answer to that. It's not so broad as to mean any interest that isn't unlawful. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So in terms of lawful interest. And I think it's important to note that it's great to interrogate what is a lawful interest, but we do need to consider it in the totality of that phrase, reasonably necessary to protect lawful interest. But in terms of lawful interest, the case of Sepulveda is a really instructive case in relation to this question. Sepulveda was a case where the accused was basically standing trial for historical sexual offences against, I think it was JD and then JD's brother BD. They were anonymised, obviously. And the entirety of that phrase was interrogated during the judgment. When looking at lawful interests, they said that the word lawful can mean something that's just simply permitted or something which can be done without an infraction of the law, or it may mean something that's supported by the law. So ultimately, they quoted the case of Violi and they said that it seems that lawful interests are to be distinguished from legal interests, so that lawful interests within that meaning are interests which are not unlawful. <laughs> I don't know how helpful that is. So... Again, you would think that in situations where a partner who might be suggested to be abusive or something like that, that would be a lawful interest. So then we have to turn to the interrogation of whether it's reasonably necessary to then record for the purpose of protecting those lawful interests. And so for my part, I think a lot of circumstances, the lawful interest aspect would probably be made out. And what's more pertinent to the argument is whether it was reasonably necessary. That's a good point. What do the authorities tell us about what's reasonably necessary? (laughs) There's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a couple of very good authorities when we turn to the question of reasonable necessity for the making of the recording. One really good judgment is that in the federal court, Commonwealth DPP and Country Care Group, Proprietary Limited. That was a cartel conduct case. In that case, there was a Mr. Cudahy, and he had a business meeting scheduled with a Mr. Hogan. Through their business dealings, Mr. Cudahy had came to distrust Mr. Hogan. Super Um, dodge. he (laughs) He thought that there was a risk that his words would be misconstrued in future meetings. He thought There was a possibility that if any promises were made by Mr. Hogan during the business meeting that he would later renege on those promises. He made the decision then to secretly record the conversation with Mr. Hogan and later, as part of this criminal case, there was the question of admissibility. And the court found in that case that it was not reasonably necessary for Mr. Cudahy to take those steps to secretly record to protect his lawful interests, although it's accepted that his interests were lawful. He certainly Mm. wasn't trying to blackmail Mr. Hogan or extort him. It was found that there were other steps which could have been taken. He could insist on the attendance of other persons at the conference. He could take a contemporaneous file note of the conversation. He could, of course, ask Mr. Hogan if he consented to their conversation being recorded. And the fact that all those steps, if they were considered, were not taken meant that it was deemed that that's not admissible evidence. I might jump in there too. I mentioned the case of Sepulveda earlier. As I said, it was really instructive on this point as well. So that was the historical sexual assault matter. And sometime later, 
many years after the sexual assault, one of the complainants recorded a conversation with the accused on a micro cassette recorder. We may have to tell our younger listeners what that might be. <laughs> yeah, we'll include a little voiceover yeah. to explain what a cassette is Probably. for our millennial <laughs> listeners. <laughs> So in that matter, the CCA disagreed with the primary judge. The primary judge found that the recording was reasonably necessary to protect the complainant's lawful interests. The CCA disagreed and they essentially held that because there were other options available to the complainant, so the complainant could have gone to police and got the police to make a pretext call. We can talk about what that is as well. And that would have been done legally. So those options were available to the complainant. And so it wasn't reasonably necessary for that complainant to make the recording. And that can be distinguished from the case of DW and the Queen. That's a 2014 CCA case. And in that matter, it was a similar sort of thing in that a complainant had secretly recorded a conversation with the accused. The accused was her father. When the recording was made, the complainant was quite young and the sexual offences were happening at the time and were ongoing. And in that matter, the court held that the recording was reasonably necessary to protect her lawful interests because of her age. She wasn't aware that there was the option available to go to the police and have the police step in and lawfully record a pretext call. So they did find that her lawful interest was to protect herself from being the victim of these offences and that it was reasonably necessary because she didn't know about alternatives. Talking about some of these cases, there are just so many factors to consider in the factual matrix for when something's a lawful interest, when something's going to be reasonably necessary. Raises all sorts of questions. It probably raises more questions than it answers. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have them all. No, not yet. Well, it does raise more questions than answers, but I suppose that's the nice thing about the law. It does keep us in a job, doesn't it? (laughs) And before we finish, I should make it clear for listeners that Helen and Damien did consent to the recording (laughs) being made today. Please don't charge me with an offence, anyone in the police listening. Helen and Damien, thank you so much for joining me again on Hearsay. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much. So good to be here. You've been listening to the Hearsay Sidebar. Sidebar is our fun, free podcast about legal news. But if you're an Australian lawyer, you can sign up to the original Hearsay the Legal podcast at htlp.com.au. That's htlp.com.au to get all 10 of your CPD points by listening to entertaining interviews with lawyers, judges and other leading figures in the law on demand, on the go and at an unbeatable price. That was HTLP for Hearsay the Legal podcast. Hearsay Sidebar is produced by Ross Davis with help from Jacob Malby. Make sure you follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you'll be notified whenever we release a new episode. If you like the show, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast platform because it helps other law geeks just like you find us. Thanks for listening.